We're starting a brand new series today through the book of Exodus. So go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Exodus chapter 1. This spring, uh, several of us went, had the privilege of going to Israel, and uh, after Israel, a group went into Jordan. It was an amazing trip uh, into Jordan. One of the things, the first stop in Jordan was to go to Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo was the place that uh, God took Moses to, to, to be able to look over all the promised land. You'll remember, and we'll see as we go through Exodus, that uh, Moses was not able to lead the children of Israel all the way into the promised land because of his disobedience, but God took him to, to see the land. When you're in that area, it looks like we have on sides of the walls here it, in the South Hills campuses, not in Robinson or Wilkinson or uh, Washington, but it's a desert area. It's barren. It's dry. And as you're traveling, you'll see these tents uh, along the side of the road, and people are, that's their life. They're living in these tents, and they have their, their sheep and their goats outside, and, and that's their life. And I was thinking as we were there, you know, we think about the children of Israel going through uh, the desert for 40 years. And in my mind, I always thought the consequence of their sin, not trusting God, was that 40-year span. And that's part of it. But it was more than just a long span of time. It was day to day living in barren land. A day to day reminder that God didn't have them where he wanted them to be. That they were there because of their consequences of their sin. That there was a better place for them. Day to day in a, in a dusty, dry, barren, hot desert. Now some of you may be there today. Maybe as a consequence of sin, or just spiritual apathy, or a, a disconnection, or discouragement. And we all go through, mature Christian or, or young Christian, we all go through times when we feel disconnected from God. So maybe you're there today. Maybe you're going through, through a great time. But one of the things we want to do through the book of Exodus is just open our minds to the person of God. We want, through the study, a bigger picture of who God is. We want a picture of God who, who can take us out of a desert area and get us where he wants us to be and help us to enjoy everything that he has for us. So in our staff, we have the staff verse, Psalm 78, 72. It's at the end of Psalm 78 where the history of Israel is given. And at the end of that psalm is written, David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. That's been our, our, our staff verse for many years. We love that verse because it talks about skillful hands, right? And sometimes we do things to, to help us uh, be better at what we do. We'll bring in leaders to speak. Uh, we'll talk about what it means to, to lead well. Uh, we'll talk about delegation. We'll talk about recruiting. We'll talk about all these things because we need to be skillful in what we do. We want to continue to grow to be skillful. But we also want a heart for God, a heart of integrity. And this year, we're focusing just on our heart. We're going through in our staff uh, meetings on Wednesday a book uh, called Knowledge of the Holy, written by a pastor back in, uh, in the 1960s in Chicago named A.W. Tozier. And if you've not read that book, I encourage you to do it. The book is on the attributes of God. And here's how he starts the book. He says, what comes to, into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just let that one soak in for a minute. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church, big C, the whole church worldwide, and also it would include us, a local church, the biggest question before us is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by the secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And then he says, a man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. Man, that's, that's some good stuff. So here's a question, right? What does come to our mind? when we think about God. And for the next several weeks, as we follow the children of Israel through Exodus, our prayer is that we have a big picture of God, an understanding of this great God we serve. And in doing that, it will change our words and our actions, and it will take the 10,000 temporal problems that we deal with and realize that that at The worst case scenario, because of who God is, we don't have to deal with these problems for long. So Exodus chapter 1, let me just set the context real quick. Moses is the writer of the book. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. He is writing after Israel uh, has been delivered, so they're in the desert, and he's writing to remind them of who who God is. In the book of Genesis, throughout the book, we see that, God, that, that Moses explains who God is a lot of times by using the names of God. So in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth, powerful, authority, sovereign. He is Elohim. He spoke the world into existence. But then it was the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, when you're in your Bibles and you see the, the, the word Lord in all caps, that's Yahweh, it was Yahweh Elohim, who breathed into man the breath of life. God, this powerful God who spoke the world into existence, stooped down and, as, as, as it were, resuscitated man. He is an intimate God. He's a personal God. We saw in, in uh, uh, Genesis, uh, El Elyon, God most high. We saw uh, Elroy, the God who sees me. Remember when Hagar was in the desert, we, we followed her in the desert, and, and she was expelled from the home uh, after she had had a child, and she was by herself. She thought she was going to die, but then she saw Elroy, the God who sees me, and wherever you are, God sees you, cares for you. He's El Shaddai. He's the all-sufficient one. He's, uh, he's Yahweh Yaira. The Lord will provide whatever you need, whatever you're going through. God's going to provide for you exactly what you need to do what he's calling you to do. So, so God's powerful work we saw all throughout the book of Genesis. We saw it in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We saw that God never wastes our time. We saw that in the life of Joseph. When his brothers sold him into slavery, then God took him in slavery to Egypt And in due time, rose him to be the second in command of all of Egypt. And it was in Egypt that he was able to to secure the grain during Egypt's famine, save Egypt, 
And then his family, remember, came to Egypt and lived there in Egypt with him, and they were saved from the famine as well. They settled here in this area of Goshen, a strategic area. We'll come back to it in a little bit. But Goshen is a strategic area. They were here in the land of Canaan. Famine hit. They had to go to Goshen and uh, in this area by the Middle East. By the way, just in case you're ever running for president and you need to know, this is Aleppo, right up there (laughs) in Syria. You need to know Aleppo is there and lots going on there. So in this world, part of the world where lots going on, they settled in Goshen. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. This is just a continuation of Genesis. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered, how many? Seventy in all. Just 70 people. Now you remember that God had given Abraham this great promise called the Abrahamic Covenant. And he told Abraham, this was before Abraham even had a son. He told Abraham, I want you to go outside your tent. I want you to look up in the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. You can't even count the stars. Your offspring's going to be like that. But here they are in, in Egypt, and there are only 70 of them. But then notice what God does. Look at verse Six and seven. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. The Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. They came with 70 people. By the time they left Egypt, we'll see in the Exodus, they had 600,000 men plus women and children, an estimated 2 million people that left Egypt into freedom. 2 million people, 70 to 2 million. Here in the land, they were fruitful. They multiplied. Remember that promise that God gave? He never goes back on his promises. Sometimes it takes some time, but he never goes back on his promises. And here we have this, this, this huge group of people living in the land of Goshen, right in Egypt. Look at verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power. We have just gone from verse 6 and 7, over 200 years, to verse 8. 200 years after Joseph first went into Egypt, This new king came into power. Now we have a different scenario going on. And this is very cool to see Egypt's history because God is always working in history. Remember the proverb says he takes the the heart of the king and he moves it wherever he wants to so that his will is accomplished. So here's what's going on in Egypt. Egypt had this group of people leading them called the Hyksos dynasty. And the Hyksos dynasty was, was probably the dynasty there when Joseph had gone to Egypt. It's probably the dynasty where Joseph was the second in command. The Hyksos people were not originally from Egypt. They were foreigners. 
depending on who you read in history, they either migrated into Egypt, and all of a sudden there are a lot of them there, and so they kind of take over. Or other historians say there were hordes of them that came into Egypt. Whatever the case, this Hyksos dynasty came to be and ruled for about 150 to 200 years. But remember, they were foreigners, and no country likes a foreigner to rule its people, right? We don't like that in the United States. Our U.S. Constitution says you have to be a United States. You have to be born here to be a U.S. citizen in order to be president of the United States. So now we have in verse 8, a new king came to power. We don't know exactly the name of that king, but we know that he pushed out, he overthrew the Hyksos dynasty. And in Egypt's history, it's called the new kingdom. A new kingdom uh, comes to be. And the first thing he does is he looks around and he says, we just got rid of those foreigners, right? The Hyksos dynasty. They were from Asia. We don't want foreigners to rule our country anymore. And so he begins to look around and reestablish the sovereignty of, of Egyptians. And who does he see in Goshen? But a bunch of foreigners who are multiplying and fruitful and filling the land. And he says, this is dangerous. And so he gives this speech. It would be like a policy speech in verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. We must deal with them shrewdly, or they will eventually, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us. So again, if you were the king of Egypt and you had just run out a foreign power, you'd be doing the same thing, right? You're looking around. Again, how God works through history. You're looking around and you're saying, man, that's a dangerous group. We have, the way he says that in Hebrew, we have a nation within a nation. That's dangerous. We're the nation of Egypt. And we got these Israel, this nation of Israel right here in our backyard. Now, the danger is they live in this strategic area. They live right here in Goshen. And we get, if, 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 if countries come like the Hyksos dynasty people did, if they come from, from the Middle East and Asia, they're going to come right through here. And we got the Israelites there. We have no protection on our borders. And the Israelites, we don't know what they're going to do. They've never adopted our customs. They do their own thing. They dress differently than we do. They act different. They even worship one God. We don't know what they're going to do. They may well, they may well join with the enemy. And if they join with the enemy, they're going to flood over us. And we're going to be right back to where we started with foreigners ruling our country. Now, it's interesting at the end of verse 10, they will fight against us and leave the country. That's not a good Hebrew translation. That's what the NIV says. The ESV says escape from the country. But a better translation would be this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 6 uses that same phrase to talk about water flooding over a part of the earth. And then um, Hosea chapter 1 verse 11 uses it to talk about enemies taking over. If, if, if the Israelites escaped or left, it, wouldn't been no, it would have been no big deal to the, to the Pharaoh, right? I mean, they're gone. The problem solved. But here's what he's worried about. He's worried 
that they will flood over Egypt like water. He's worried that this huge group, two million people, they're going to come over and they're going to take over Egypt. So we've got to do something about this. We have to deal with this problem of the Israelites. Again, it's fascinating how God uses history to accomplish his will. So the new king went into action. Look at verse 11. They put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. Now, the Israelites, for over 200 years, that's our history of our United States, for all that time, they had lived in Goshen. They had no problems with the Egyptians. They were probably prosperous because, remember, they had been given the, the, the right to, to raise, uh, the, to be shepherds and to raise the, the sheep and goats and cattle and all that. But they didn't have any reason to muster an army. They're just living in peace. And all of a sudden, so they're, they're taken totally by surprise when all of a sudden the, the Egyptian army shows up and oppresses them with forced labor and has them build Python and Ramses as store cities. So now, remember, Goshen is that strategic area, and in that area, the king, the new king, is building, is having the Israelites build these cities for uh, military fortresses along that area. They're going to have barracks in them. Uh, they're going to have store, storage areas for weapons, not for grain, but for weapons, strategically. So two things are getting done. One, he's going to control the population by putting them into slavery. And secondly, he's going to have his storehouses built, his strategic barracks built. By putting in them into slavery, he figures this is going to happen. One, the men are going to be out working, right? And they're going to be out working for days, and they're not going to be able to go home and be with their wives, and that's going to help control the population. Secondly, the crops and the fields, the men are going to be out in slave forced uh, labor. They're not going to be able to take care of their crops and fields, and so people are going to starve. We'll control the population by that. Well, not, we won't exterminate them. We're just going to control the population. We're going to use them to our advantage. Thirdly, any, any slave system is going to cause ill health, and many of them are going to die in the process. So he thinks by this slavery that he's going to take care of the population growth, right? Again, from a human standpoint, that's the plan. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, what happened? The more they multiplied and spread. Now, that doesn't happen naturally. Not a natural thing, right? So God is at work behind the scenes, as he always is. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor, brick and mortar, all kinds of work in the fields. They probably were digging irrigation ditches from the Nile River out into the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians treated them ruthlessly. But again, in the midst of their oppression, God blessed them. We'll talk about that more in a second. Well, that didn't work, the forced labor. So Pharaoh comes up with another idea. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, 
By the way, there were more than two Hebrew midwives. These were the, these were the leaders. These were the senior midwives. These were the two midwives in charge of all the midwives. They had worked their way through the ranks. They were in charge. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe, observe them on the delivery stool. By the way, the, the delivery stool literally there is two stones. That's where a woman would kneel or sit to give birth in that day. And you're going to have the strategic advantage of knowing right then and there, whether it's a boy or a girl, if it's a boy, kill him, strangle him, get rid of him. If it's a girl, then let her live. So the forced slavery didn't work. That's still going on. But now, to the midwives, we're going to put to death every boy. The boys are going to grow up to be warriors. The boys are going to be the ones who work the fields in that day. And so, we can again, we can control the population and keep the people oppressed and weakened by killing the boys. But look at verse 17. The midwives, however, what? Feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. The word feared God means they trusted God. They weren't like in a cowardly fear of God. They loved God. They wanted to obey him. They wanted to revere him. They had a big picture of who God was. And they were not about to go against what they knew God believed in the sanctity of life and put these little boys to death even if it meant, even that it meant, going against Pharaoh. They were willing to stare down the most powerful man on earth and say, you know what? We're going to obey God, not man. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Any, anything going on in your life where that would apply? Any area of your life where you're pleasing a person rather than God? an authority in your life rather than God. Another person, maybe you have respect for a person that you think holds something over you rather than God. See, when we, when we, in any time, we please people rather than God. Anytime we move into a gray area or an outright sin to please a person rather than God, we're in some dangerous, dangerous territory. Again, Moses wrote this after the children of Israel had been delivered, right? They're in the desert. They're wandering. And he writes these two midwives' names down. He just doesn't say the leaders are the midwives or the midwives. He writes their names down. You know why? Because these women are heroes. He never wants the Israelites to forget Shifra and Pua. They were the heroes. They were, they were the examples they were the ones you could hold up and say, yeah, I'm going through a tough time. And it'd be easier to cave and please man rather than God. But Shifra and Pua didn't do it. They are heroes of the faith, the heroes of Israel. And they are the examples, not only for Israel, but for us today. So some time went by. Uh, Actually, boys and girls on that day when there wasn't a lot of laundry being done, they, they dressed in kind of dresses, and probably boys and girls would look a lot alike until they got the same haircut until they got to a certain age. So maybe we're talking two or three or four or five years go by until you can really tell who's a boy and who's a girl. And uh, the Pharaoh says, time out. 
You're not doing what, what I told you to do. Look at verse um, 10. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Look at verse 19. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. They're an amazing group of people. <laughs> we don't know if they were telling the story or they were telling the truth. I mean, it could have been that by the time they got the message to go help a person out, a woman out, that, the woman, that God had already allowed the woman to give birth and the, the, the mother was holding the baby in her arms when the midwife got there. That could well be the truth. Whatever was the case, they obeyed God and not man. Look at verse 20. Midwives in that day were women who didn't have children, so they were free to go help other women, not only in just a childbirth, but sometimes uh, in child care and, and the things that go on in pregnancy. But what, look what God does. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people continued to increase and become more numerous. Look at verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. What a great blessing. Now remember, they're senior midwives. They've worked their way up, so they're not young women. A miracle takes place there in verse 20. God miraculously allows them to have children of their own. Well, slavery didn't work for Pharaoh. The, the midwife plan didn't work. So now he's going to get everybody involved. Look at verse 22. Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every boy that is born, you must throw in the Nile but let every girl live. All the people, general command. You see a boy, a Hebrew boy, toss him in the Nile. For three reasons commentators give the Nile. First of all, the people lived by the Nile. It was the source of life, so it had been convenient. Secondly, as bad as it sounds, it would have been clean toss them in the Nile, and the, and, the, and the flow of the Nile would have just washed them away out of sight and out of mind. One commentator says this, that might have been happening. The Nile, in the Egyptians' eyes, the Nile was a god, one of their many gods. And so it kind of relieved the person's guilt by throwing this baby in the Nile because it was throwing it, they were throwing the baby to a god and in this perverted mindset, if the God didn't want the baby, he would give it back. But, of course, if he accepted it, it would take the blame off of the people. Whatever the case was, we have infanticide going on to control the population. We're going to see how God uses that to spare Moses and how Moses becomes the leader who delivers Israel from their slavery. We'll do that next time. We're going to get ready to take communion here, but just two points as we wrap this first chapter up. Throughout the book of Genesis, Moses writes all these names of God that we talked about earlier, Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, El Elyon, um, Yahweh Yaira, all these names of God. But in the first two chapters of Exodus... 
There's no mention of God at all. He didn't write God's name one time. A couple reasons, we think. One, that was the atmosphere going on there. The people were in a tough time. They were living in slavery. They were crying out to God, what are you doing? Where are you? You've left us. You get this blessing us, but we're in oppression. God seemed absent, and so he's absent in the writing, at least, of his name. But here's the point. God is at work even when we don't recognize it, right? Even when his name's not mentioned, we see him at work. We see him at work in the king, in the history of Egypt. We see him at work in the lives of Shifra and Pula, miracle babies coming to their families. We see him at work in, um, in, in, in blessing the Israel, in, in, in their oppression. When the population should have been controlled, they keep growing. See, God is always at work. And you might be in a time where, you know, it's like chapters 1 and 2, God's name's not mentioned. But I just got to remind you, He's at work. He doesn't waste our time. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's doing something in your life. He's preparing you for good things. He's preparing you for his things. And it might seem like you're distant. And it might seem like he's not there. But he's there. You know, sometimes we hear people say, oh, I had a God sighting this week. And that's fine. But, but it's not like God's a UFO. He doesn't just kind of show up sometimes. He's always there. We can have a God sighting every minute of every day when we can look and see that he's at work. Sometimes it takes us to look back in our lives to see how he was at work. But our, the history in our lives of him being at work reminds us every day, every minute of every day, he's right there with us. We're significant to him. He secures us. He loves us and accepts us. He forgives us. He powers us. He's right there with us. So if you're feeling today that God's not around, if you're a believer, he is. He lives in you and with you. And he's given you everything you need to, to build you and, and mold you for this next stretch of your life. Secondly, and we'll work, we'll work through this throughout the book, God's, in, in the midst of all this stuff, God's greatly blessing the people, right? In the midst of the oppression. God's blessings are often in conflict with the sinful values of a fallen world and become a threat to those not aligned with God. God may be blessing you in a significant way. We still live in a fallen world. And the blessings God gives to you may seem to be a threat to those who are not aligned with God, just like what happened to Israel. The more he blesses them, the more oppressed they become. It's what happens in a fallen world. God's blessing to us may be a threat to others. And with his help, we have to work through that. And we see that sometimes exemplified in our lives. The greatest example of that is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the, em- the embodiment of deity and purity, God's greatest blessing to this world, the blessing of salvation, sent Jesus as the Savior. That great blessing was what? Misunderstood. The fallen world didn't accept Jesus. In fact, those who put him on a cross thought they were doing the world a favor. Hebrews says it this way. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Remember, Jesus cried, Lord, if there's any way to take this away from me, let's do it. If there's another plan, let's do it. Just like the Israelites were crying out to God, just like you may be crying out to God, so Jesus did. I don't, I don't, if there's another way to, to do this, let's do it. He cried out with fervent tears to the one, the only one who could save you from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission, because of his obedience. Son though he was, the son of God though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The greatest blessing of all, Jesus Christ, the source of of eternal salvation. And he's the one we want to focus on right now during communion. When we take the bread and the cup, we remember what Jesus did for us, the greatest blessing God could give us, and how that has changed our life. He is the source of our eternal salvation. He's the only way we can have a relationship with God. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ today, you are welcome to take the bread and the cup. If you've not trusted in Christ, just let it pass. No one's going to know. No one's going to care. But we're going to take the bread and the cup together, and just as you hold it, there'll be passages on the screen. You can read those passages. But let this be a time when you, when you begin to think about the, the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the love of God who would send his son to die for you on a cross. And in doing that, Just renew your love and your passion for him.